Good Wednesday morning. Today we are talking with John Patrick, and we are going to be talking about the church, breaking bread, community, and what that can look like and maybe what it doesn't look like right now for you. It's good to see you again. Um, and you brought back memories, and we were talking about Craig's home group last night, church group in his home, and it took me back a long way, strangely, to a couple of things and brings them together. Um, we would not have survived as Christians without um, a home group. Uh, we had a an evangelical church that was solid and uh, as a place of fellowship, um, fairly, well, orthodox teaching, but not reaching where we were. And where we were, of course, is that we'd both gone through university and suffered the damage that that uh, produces, especially in medicine where you worked for five months and two weeks without any official time off. So Christian fellowship was, had been non-existent for me uh, since I, basically since I'd graduated. Um, Sally had turned up in my life again during that period, and she was beginning to get her life straightened out, which was good. Uh, and we got married. She shouldn't have married me at that time. I was not in a good state, but thank God she did. Um, and we knew that we needed support for our marriage because we we're both always right, fiery, uh, confronted, uh, confrontational personalities. So sparks fly anyway. Uh, we say the only verse in the Bible that describes our marriage is iron sharpens iron. You know, sparks fly, fire start. Frequently, they're good things. Uh, all the most interesting things we've done were stimulated by Sally saying, I'm fed up with the way you've got life organized at the moment. Let's do it different. So that took me from the straightforward route to working 100 hours a week, making lots of money as a consultant physician in London, which is the obvious route that I was on. Uh, instead, I did a PhD. And when that was over, I went to Jamaica. And when that was over, uh, I was supposed to come back to London, but the good Lord had other plans, and we ended up in uh, Ottawa, having turned Harvard down en route. So we've had a very interesting life from that point of view, and I left the university a few years early because this current life, which has been going on now since, well, started in the early 90s, um, was pushed on me by students. So God's way of doing things... Uh, are not predictable, but they're, they're good. Uh, the favorite phrase in our family was, uh, he's not safe, but he is good, which, of course, comes from the Narnia uh, stories and Lucy asking, asking Mrs. Beaver if Aslan is safe. No, he's not safe, but he is good. And that's certainly been our experience in innumerable ways. So... Uh, we got settled into a little apartment, and uh, we went to the local church, and there were three or four families of the same age, and in very short time, all of us had had children. Uh, and that changes everything, as you, any of you have had children know. The day after the baby arrives, they've got you captured, and everything has changed. Um, so we needed to, to find some way to get together. So we started having one night a week, just cheese and soup, um, bread, very simple. 
but we'd meet at one or the other houses and the guys would come straight from work uh, to whichever house it was at and uh, mums took the babies in various carrying uh, baskets and things and uh, fed them and bathed them and got them asleep so that by the time we arrived the children were all upstairs asleep and we had soup and cheese and then we started to read the Bible together. Um, we had two bless two particular blessings in that group. One was that three of them had known one another earlier in there before the university really did them a lot of damage and they'd worked together in a inner city mission, lived in an inner city mission in Bermondsey. So they had some longer-term connections. Uh, the other very good thing about that group was that it was not confined to same age. We had a couple of older people, and that's a good thing to encourage. Um, especially in our highly mobile age, one of the things the church can provide is locum grandparents. Every child needs grandparents, and uh, the one that was our grandparent was not actually in that group, but she was in the area, and she was my best man's mum. She was much more granny to the family because she was there all the while, and they all loved her. Um, you need that. And the other thing was that one of the couples there had a long, solid Christian history of mission work, so uh, under difficult circumstances. So it wasn't a, you know, let's all clap hands and be happy. Uh, it was very realistic, and we read the scriptures together. That was where I first began to realize that that I had a way of talking about the scriptures, which seemed to me the only obvious way to do it, but it wasn't as obvious to everyone else. So uh, those skills began to be honed in various ways. And it's very important uh, that the Christians find out what gifts God has given them and give them back to the giver. Uh, we are meant to serve, and if we're not serving, um, we will not flourish. Uh, I mean, Jesus, in John 13, in the upper room discourse, begins an amazing passage. Uh, first thing I didn't notice for years is the before Jesus gets to doing anything, John provides a little editorial and says, Jesus, knowing that the end was nigh and knowing that God had put everything into his hands, my goodness, if somebody said that to an academic, okay, you've got a, f a few hours to go, but you know everything, you'd be scribbling like mad to write absolutely amazing stuff that would blow people's minds for the rest of time. Jesus didn't do that. He got up, put a towel around his waist, and washed the disciples' feet. He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew that he was on his way back, having completed his mission. In one very deep sense, the Via Dolorosa, the road to the cross, was actually a triumphal march. Jesus said to the women who were weeping, Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. You're the ones who are facing trouble. He was, as Paul put it later, taking captivity captive and giving gifts to men. Uh, so before he got to that, 
he was concerned about others, not himself. And so he says to his disciples when he's washed their feet, he said, you call me master and Lord, and you do right, because that is who I am. If I then, your Lord and master, wash your feet, what ought you to do? That's a no-brainer, but it's very hard to do. Uh, we all like to be top of the heap in one way or another. We all have to work very hard not to throw authority around and the like, and our politicians are absolutely useless at it, which is why they're incompetent. They don't know how to serve, because we can't do anything without Christ's help. He tells us that a little later in the Upper Room Discourse. He says, you can do nothing without me, nothing of any significance. But with me, everything is possible. Um, and that's what the whole story is about. I mean, it's the whole thing is a training program. The whole Judeo-Christian story. I mean, God knew it all. And he still went ahead. So the benefits of the world being as bad as it is, so that those people who are willing to acknowledge the truth and come to know Christ are different. Uh, John Stott's summary of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus says to his disciples, you must be different, and the difference must show. And uh, it shows usually in s small groups that then influence the bigger group that's been marching on with all its flaws, which we call the church. Um, but as we said at the beginning, Acts 2.42 is something that every young person needs to be taught very, very thoroughly. Uh, Jesus had gone to glory, the Holy Spirit had come, and they described the church as it was then, no structure, no authority other than the Lord in heaven. Was They continued in the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayers. Four things. Uh, the sine qua non of surviving as a Christian. And uh, one of the reasons I think that the church in Africa is sort of stuck in a rut in some ways at the moment is that one of those things has not yet found its way into the evangelical church sufficiently in, in Africa. And that is uh, doing what Jesus, the one thing he asked us to do was to remember him in the breaking of bread and uh, the, the taking of communion. This is my body, this is my blood. Um, he didn't say this is a symbol of my body, a symbol of my blood. He, he said it straightforwardly. So at the deepest level, it is something very, very important and way beyond us in many respects. But I hope that everyone listening to this who is a Christian uh, has had moments when they've taken the Lord's Supper which have been different from other moments, memorable in incredible ways. Um, the realization of just how big this story is. And I don't think there's enough amazement in the world at the Christian life. And that's because we've forgotten how to talk about what God does in our lives. We've had what should be called an ordinary Christian life, but to most people it's not because most people hold on to the agenda themselves. And the result of doing that is your own boring imagination is all that's left to run your life. 
God's imagination, just look around you. Uh, it's far beyond ours, so why not trust it? And that's what happened to those people. I mean, many of them. In the next century or so, thousands of them were martyred. And they rejoiced at the time, the promise that, have no fear what they will do, because I will be with you. And the slaughtering of Christians, with people watching and seeing what happened to them. And that's always been the case with martyrs, that amazing things happen. It's as though they're lifted out of their normal human experience. That's exactly what happened with the first martyr, Stephen. They were throwing stones at him, and he wasn't feeling them. He was looking up into heaven and seeing what came next. He had no subjective experience of martyrdom that came close to the affective experience of going home. Uh, doctors are blessed with that to a small degree when one sees devout Christians die, and often at the end of their life there is a moment that's that's full of holiness, full of grace, and most people have lost that. Uh, we don't read enough missionary biographies, or the ones we do read are double-spaced modern ones, where they go somewhere in the world and build a little bit of home and preach the gospel in a truncated version and come back every year or so for a, a longer fundraising tour. That's not what missionaries used to be like. It's necessary in many ways. It's part of the fall. Um, the thought of packing all your belongings in the coffin, in a coffin and then setting off because you didn't intend to come back home again, that was a different world. So, um, we are to bear witness to where we are, and at the moment the witness has to be we're rather dull Christians, and unless the Lord works on us, it will remain that way. And when he does work, the first thing, of course, will be repentance. Um, it always is. Just read the letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, if you read it and, st and don't read the last verse, you think, what a wonderful church. The doctrine's right. They know how to resist evil, etc., etc. Amazing church. And then Christ says, but I have one thing against you. You have lost your first love. And if you do not recover it, I will take your candlestick away. And there's no church at Ephesus today. Uh, Asia Minor is almost bereft of Christians, very few Christians there. Um, it, stop, it, it can stop you in your tracks. So back to Acts 2.42, they continue the Apostles' Doctrine, which means for us reading the Scriptures and reading around the scriptures, finding people we can trust. I mean, there's no excuse in the modern world for reading rubbish. Uh, you only need one person who you trust who will lead you to another, who will lead you to another, who will lead you to another. Uh, and you don't need to read any rubbish at all. You don't have to pick up a book because you're bored. You need to, in these days, just send an email saying, I'm bored, I need to read something that will feed my soul. You send it to me. If I can't think of anything, I have people who do. I mean, Christians are all connected to one another. You've got no excuse for not 
using your time well, except exhaustion. That's something you pray about. So they continued the Apostles' Doctrine, which for them was the Old Testament and shortly was going to be added to by what we call the New Testament. But initially, uh, they were rereading the Old Testament with new eyes, and it was changing. Uh, and they were, behold how they love it. These Christians love one another was the first statement in the Acts of the Apostles about Christians, is that they loved one another. Uh, not in the silly, soppy version of love that we have today, but in the sense that they knew one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that changed the world. I maintain that the early church really flourished because of childcare. Uh, I, I'm sure I've quoted this on this uh, podcast before, but it, it's worth quoting again, and someday somebody will find it for me. I know that somewhere in the early uh, literature, not of the church, but of uh, the Roman world, there is a letter from a Roman governor in some distant part of the empire writing to Rome to ask for advice. And the letter goes like this. These Christians are not exposing their own children, and moreover, they are rescuing the exposed children of others. What should I do? No, he was a clever man. He realized this was trouble because the future is the current children. Evangelicals and Orthodox Jews will rule in America if we survive long enough because we're having children and they're not, and if we take control of immigration in ways that are more sensible. Um, that's what happened. So what's he talking about? Well, it, there was no abortion in the ancient world except for the very wealthier. Caesar's uh, nieces were very likely to need an abortion because Caesar had impregnated them at some time or another, and they often died in the process. It was dangerous, very dangerous, because they didn't know anything about infection and the like. Um, so what ordinary people did when another child came along and the parents looked at one and said, we can't handle another child. We have to get rid of it. So in many cities, there was a place at the city gates where you could leave it and a child you didn't want and somebody else could pick it up if they wanted. Otherwise, it died and the dogs ate. And nobody cared. Nobody thought anything about it. That's the way it was. We've got to the same stage. Uh, we, we go mad about eight people being killed in a shooting and think nothing of 50 million babies aborted before birth. What's, what's happened to our minds? Um, which is the worldwide figure. We're only, we only relate to things that we could just about subjectively imagine ourselves to be in. But we have no deeper thoughts than that. So the, the solution in the ancient world to unwanted children was infanticide, either immediately or indirectly. Uh, and the next bit is, is pure... Well, it's not pure artistic license because we have the letter, which I think tells us what must have happened next, is that Christians would meet when they could, and sometimes they had to meet in secret and at all sorts of different places. The catacombs were real, and persecution was real. But their faith was so lively that they took those risks in order to meet. And 
I wonder how many people would come to our home groups if we thought the uh, the opposition were were watching for what we were doing and were looking for an excuse to send us to the lions. I suspect the church would be thinned out pretty quickly, but it would also grow in spirit. So they met when they could. And after their meetings, for which they had little format, it would emerge over time, they would say something like this, you know, Christ coming into our lives has been far and away the most amazing, wonderful, beautiful thing that has happened to us. And they say, it is, it is. Uh, look at the children running around, look at just the environment we have been given because of this. But they'd look at one couple and say, you're not quite so engaged as usual. What's the problem? And then they would say, well, we're pregnant again and we don't think we can handle another baby. What would be the immediate response of any half-decent Christian community? And what it certainly was there, oh, we'll help. Don't worry about it. And the help was real. It was practical because it would, it would need to be practical. And then uh, the next bit I, I like to imagine, and I hope one day I'll, it must have happened on occasion, but I, I hope to meet somebody for whom it was true. But this couple who had learned that they could trust God with their fertility picked up a child at the gates uh, and took it home and raised it as well. And they weren't alone in doing that. So some years later, they had to tell this child in their family when they thought they were mature enough, they'd say, we have a story to tell you. Um, you are our daughter and we love you dearly, but you came to us in a very, very special way. And you changed us in a special way. We were walking through the city and we came to the city gates where babies had dropped off. And you had been left in the dirt. And we looked at you and the love of Jesus so flowed through us that we had no option. We had to pick you up and bring you home. And we're so glad we did. You don't have to preach the gospel to that child. The whole thing is Signed, sealed, and delivered in a couple of sentences. That's why the church flourished, because it was real. In the really difficult situations of life, it was real. And that's what we've lost in many ways. We want to be in charge of everything. We've been so hammered by the idea that we choose what we want to do. Well, we do, but... It's a very unwise thing to do. Yeah, we have that option. We can choose. But if we're wise, we don't want to choose when it's better to pray and ask for guidance, which is always. Um, so we're getting the world that we respond to. One in six women who are currently fertile in Canada have had an abortion. The figures will be the same or worse in the States, but you have a much higher church-going rate. So it means there's a lot of women. If your church is bringing in uh, a serious cross-section of the population, a lot of women there have had an abortion and have never said anything about it because they recognize quite clearly most of the congregation don't want to know. Um, 
The early church wasn't like that. The nitty-gritty was so close that, uh, I mean, people used to get their Christian friends drunk so that they could take them uh, and get the pinch of snuff into the incense so they didn't get martyred. Um, that That kind of thing went on. But many died because they would not deny Christ. And the stories, of course, are just so amazing. Yep. Uh, yeah, well, you see, y- you had to have a sort of formal uh, a- admission of the, the deity of the emperor. So once a year in most places, you had to offer a pinch of incense to sort of get your certificate. I don't know how it exactly worked, but that's what had to be done. And Christians wouldn't do it. So some of their non-Christian friends who like said <laughs> they arranged it, so to speak, on occasions. But God also looked after them. But thousands died rather than deny Christ. And the stories went round the whole of the Mediterranean base. Everybody knew that when Christians died, amazing things could happen. They didn't die screaming in agony. They knelt down and prayed, and the lions killed them. Uh, That was one particular story. Um, The famous bishop, whose name currently has disappeared from me, who lived into his 80s, but they wanted him to deny his faith, and he would not, he said. All these years, he has never let me down. I will not. Uh, They didn't want to kill him because he was so popular locally, but they'd got themselves into a situation there they couldn't back off. So they put him literally on a barbecue to kill him slowly, to give him time to repent. And he refused, in fact, at one point. He said, I think I'm done on that side. You can turn me over now. He even had a wry sense of humour under those circumstances. And, of course, that story is still told to this day, telling it now. The gospel wasn't spread by force. That's the difference between Islam and Christianity. Islam conquered the Mediterranean basin because of swift horses and sharp swords and a pretty amazing uh, strategic skills. But people had a choice. If you were a person of the book, you could pay n times more tax than the Muslims and uh, step off into the mud every time a Muslim came along. If you weren't a a person of the book, you had the choice. Either you become a Muslim or we chop off your head. Not surprisingly, a lot of people chose to become Muslim. And you see how dry and formal it is to this day and how... Radicals trying to reignite what they consider to be the golden age do horrendous things. Whereas Christianity had no armies. It had the gospel. The story that Christ was God who made all this and died for your sins. So that if you repent, if you ask him to give you the gift of repentance, and you ask him into your life, if you ask, you seek and knock, he will come to you and your life will be changed. It was. And Christianity grew, conquered the Roman Empire. 
an amazing story. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. I'm actually going to keep recording with John, so we're going to do a part two of this, and I have some questions I want to ask him, and it sounds like he thinks he got through about half of what he wanted to get through. So tune in next week for more of this. Thank you guys all for listening. If you enjoyed it, subscribe, share it with a friend, leave a review, and if you got any questions for Dr. John, you can go to johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask, or check the links in the description below, and you can ask a question that we can answer on the show. 